Well, teacher doesn't know what to say except thank you so much. Uh, I'm so grateful that you're here this morning. I'm grateful that you're here each of these Thursday mornings, and some of you have been here for many, many, many Thursday mornings. And uh, it's an encouragement to me to study the Bible, to study it with you in public. There's a, dy- a spiritual dynamic when we're together. I think you feel it. I do too. Uh, one of the great uh, privileges of teaching the Bible is that uh, it holds you accountable. And I, I've, I've said many times, I can't believe I get paid for this. I mean, you guys are paying me to study the Bible. And you guys do it for free. But uh, it's my job. And I can't thank you enough for this great privilege. And the friendship that we enjoy together and have some of us for 22 years in this fellowship has been absolutely remarkable. Uh, when some of you were speaking about my humility, I was thinking of a comment that Winston Churchill once made about uh, an acquaintance of his. He said he's a very humble man with much to be humble about. <laughs> so it's not hard to be humble when you... <laughs> yeah, this is absolutely gorgeous. I can't wait to put that on my bookshelf. I've been working this month to try to get ready to transfer my church library over to my house and uh, this will be in a prominent place. Thank you so much. You're always on my heart uh, and will be, even when I'm not teaching here every Thursday morning. Speaking of which, look, guys, this is a great Bible study. We've, we have various teachers here. We have for years. Every year we've had a variety of teachers. We'll continue to do that, and I encourage you to come. You know, uh, at Second Presbyterian, uh, we're entering a period of transition where the senior minister is retiring and another one will come later. And we're, we're all facing that too. There are always transitions in life. And when we're studying the Bible, we have to always, uh, you know, of course we're learning directly from the Bible, but many people teach us. You know, my library uh, represents my teachers. They're on the shelf. And I listen to each of them when I read them. And we need to listen to different people because different t- teachers bring different personalities and different perspectives to the Bible. And it helps enrich our learning. So let's enter this next season with enthusiasm and anticipation that, you know, Barton and Todd and David and some others will be bringing us what they, through their experience and their personality, they'll be teaching us. And be as eager to learn as we go forward as you have in the past. And that to me is what Amen Bible Study is all about. It's about the presence of God with men. Amen. And so uh, let's continue to study the Bible together. When I'm in town Thursday mornings, I might be sitting right back there somewhere (laughs) and joining you and studying the Bible with you. So let's continue that. Uh, We all know the power of the Word in our lives. Uh, If you've been at it for a while, you know those moments when something comes up and you think about something you read in the morning or read last week or studied an Amen Bible study or heard in church. The Word always bears fruit. But I'm convinced that the greatest moment when we're going to see the power of the Word is when we do get home. And we also at that point will have a sight of what has been arrayed against us during this life. And we're going to ask ourselves, how in the world did I ever make it through? I I knew Satan was powerful. I believe what the Bible said about it. But now I'm looking at him as he's being destroyed. He's awesome. How did I ever escape his grasp? And you realize what it was. It was God speaking through that book by the power of His Holy Spirit. And that's what kept you. So, you know, sometimes the Baptists or the preachers will get together and say, well, how many did you have saved on Sunday? And they'll say, oh, I had 10, 15. And the answer is really, we all got saved. 
We get saved every Thursday morning. We get saved every Sunday morning. We get saved every time we open the book. That word is saving us. And when we get home, we're going to realize how powerful it actually is, that it keeps and preserves us. And that is a mighty ministry that we must never underestimate. So for the preserving influence of the Bible on my life, I want to thank you for participating with me as brothers in this study. It's been a great joy. Well, uh, we come to study the Bible, and uh, let's open to 1 John and turn to uh, verse 7. You have left me all of 26 minutes. <laughs> uh, let's race through it. This is an important section. Don't feel too badly that we're only spending 26 minutes on it because, uh, as we've mentioned before, the structure of 1 John is sort of conical, cyclical. You're going up a staircase like this. So you hit these three themes over and over again. And remember, the themes are the most fundamental areas of life that change by the power of the Word and the Spirit. They give you the assurance that you actually have been converted and are destined to be with the Lord. And that is your ethical life changes, your doctrinal life changes, and your relational life changes. And John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you're going to know that you have eternal life. I'm, I'm writing to you who know the Lord so that you know that you know that you have eternal life. So he's showing you how we can apply these tests to our lives. Now last week we saw that the ethical life changes dramatically when you become a Christian and it's from the inside out. Some people will try to fake it because maybe they're in a generally Christian society and they want to fit in so they, they'll, they'll alter some external language or conduct to some degree in order that they may be perceived as part of the group. But that's called hypocrisy, isn't it? We're presenting ourselves as something we're really not on the inside. But we've seen with the Christian ethic that it starts with the heart, that our desires, our ambitions, our aspirations, our affections are going out to the Lord because we've been changed. And as a result of that then, our language, our conduct, everything about us is gradually changing. Well, the same is true with your loves. And we'll see that real love is an indelible and inescapably a distinctive mark of the Christian believer. You know, uh, John Calvin implicitly and um, uh, others following him explicitly said that there are three marks of the church, of the true church, the true preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. I don't know that any of us would disagree with that. But when you look in the scriptures, if you were to find the one big mark of the people of God, it is love. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. Not because you subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Not because you don't cheat in your business anymore. No, this is how everybody will know, because you love one another. That's an amazing statement. And you find it also in the high priestly prayer when he's praying for us to be one as God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are one. This unity that is bonded by true brotherly love is the most obvious distinctive of the church. So if you want to know how others out there are going to know that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the most distinctive mark of all. So let's look at this text. It's going to press upon us the necessity for this sort of biblically defined love. We're going to talk a little bit about how we can express it, and then we'll, we'll pray. 
Let's look then at, at uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Okay, first of all, let's look at verses 7 and 8 and let's notice that for the believer, love is old and new. Love is ancient and love is very current. Love was taught us from the beginning and love will be taught us to the very end. Love is old and love is new. First of all, how is it old? Well, he says, I'm writing you no new commandment. He said, you've had this all along. And there are two ways in which he means this. Number one, he means that when I first proclaimed the gospel to you, I talked about love right from the beginning. You'll remember, back to your conversion, you were taught there were two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors yourself. You heard that from the very beginning. He says it's old stuff. Well, after all, everything in Amen Bible study, it's old stuff. You've heard it before. It's being reminded to you every day. That's what we need. Why? Because your unreminder uh, is at work. Your forgetter is always at work. You have to take in the scripture. That's the reason you read the scriptures every day. You've got to take it in because your old mind forgets and your heart is hard and you've got to continue to be renewed. So he says, but I want to tell you, this is nothing new. I'm not, I'm not change, moving the cheese on you. This was the, the cheese was there in the first place and it's still there. But there's a second sense in which he probably means it, and that is that if you've, if you've grown up with the Old Testament, you Jewish background believers, you know that it's in Leviticus, you know that it's in Deuteronomy, that you're the love of the Lord and you're supposed to love your neighbor, you're supposed to care for your vulnerable neighbor. You hear about the, the widow and the orphan and the sojourner, the immigrant. 36 times in the Old Testament, you hear about the immigrant and how you're supposed to care for him, which makes the evangelical uh, comments, many of them, about how we're to deal with Hispanic immigrants so unbelievable. Uh, when we have an Old Testament that's teaching us, and once again, I'm not, not talking about public policy or law enforcement. I'm talking about how you love your neighbor. That is there in the Old Testament. I'm not telling you anything new. This is old stuff, says John. It's been in the Bible for hundreds and hundreds of years. So even Paul himself, you'll remember in Romans 13, when he's teaching about what is the essence of the Christian ethic, he says, love your neighbor. And when you look at the Ten Commandments, uh, commandments 5 through 10, beginning with honor your parents, ending with not coveting. What's it all about? Loving your neighbor. So you've got six out of the ten commandments that have to do with love. He says, this is nothing new. This is old stuff. But it is new in this sense. Look at verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment. 
And why is it? Why does he say that it's new? Well, look what he says. It is true in him. Who's him? Jesus. And in you. So there's something about Jesus and you in the new covenant that's new relative to love. And of course, Jesus said that, didn't he? In John chapter 13, when he talked about loving as we have been loved, he says, I'm giving you a new commandment. And we celebrate that commandment on Maundy Thursday, the Thursday of Holy Week. Maundy is the word for commandment. Mondum is the word, Latin word for commandment. So it's commandment Thursday. And we remember the new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. So Jesus himself said, this is like the 11th commandment. This is a new commandment. What was new about it? We've already seen that it, it was also old. Well, I'll tell you what's new. Let me give you a few, a, a few ways in which it's new. First of all, the emphasis that Jesus is giving to it and his apostles. It's really clear that this comes front and center in your New Testament. That as we face the Gentile world, this world of nations and many different religions, the cutting edge of everything that we do, whether it's verbal proclamation or mercy ministry or social justice, whatever it is, it is led with genuine, heartfelt, Christ-empowered love. And that emphasis could not be clear in the New Testament. So there's a new emphasis. Secondly, there's a new example. Jesus says, as I have loved... So here it ratchets everything up to, an, to a new level that we are to look at Jesus Christ not as some unattainable goal that we can forget, but rather a very memorable goal that is practically set before us every day. He is the gold standard. And none of us can say that, that we, we're lovers until we're loving like Jesus does. Now, of course, we're not going to do so perfectly. But that describes the trajectory of every disciple's life. If you're not following the love of Jesus Christ, if you have not embraced His love as the standard for your love, you're simply not following Him. As one scholar once said, the followers of Jesus follow Jesus. If you're not following Jesus, you're not a Jesus follower. It's just that simple. So everyone who's following Jesus follows His love because He's a new example. And then also, thirdly, He gives us a new extent of this love. He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. When the Bible scholars, the, the amen teachers, said to him, so who is my neighbor? They were hoping that he would you know, boil this down to some workable-sized group where we could actually accomplish this. And he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. There's your neighbor, the one that you normally hate, the one that you despise, the one whose religion seems hostile to yours, the one who actually is a terrorist. There's your neighbor. So love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus makes this more clear in the New Testament than I think you even get it in the Old Testament. He's saying there's an aggressive love for your enemy. And brothers, this is really distinctive to the Christian faith because naturally human love is quid pro quo. It's, it's this for that. It's I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. It's it's dependent, interdependent. That's human love. Christian love distinctly breaks the, the quid pro quo because your quid pro quo is this way. Jesus loved you and he loves you perfectly. Therefore, regardless of how you're being loved, you're going to love. Now, this doesn't mean that you lay down your arms and that you're all pacifists and you, you never use force. It doesn't mean that at all. 
In fact, in law enforcement is, for the Christian, a subset of the rule of law, I mean of the rule of love. Law enforcement, for Thomas Aquinas, was an aspect of Christian love. So we love, we, we enforce the law not just to protect ourselves, we enforce the law to protect our neighbors. It's neighbor love. So for the Christian, we subsume all of this life that we're living, including what appears to be self-protective, under the banner of love. That's how we want to be motivated. And as we've seen many times before, our motivations are everything. So the extent of the love, fourthly. Fifthly, the energy of this love comes from the Holy Spirit. It's an alien love. It's a love that you cannot, no human being, not even a great human being like Mahatma Gandhi, can stir up within his own soul Christian love. I mean, if you want to take a human example, he comes as close as any of us could, he comes as close as you could come, I would think. But even Gandhi can't do it. The great Gandhi cannot stir up enemy love. He can promote nonviolence, which is a strategy to get your way with your enemy. And we're grateful for it. And Dr. King learned a lot from Gandhi using nonviolence to get your way against your enemy. But Christian love is to seek the advantage of your enemy. It is another step forward that no pagan can possibly imitate. And then, of course, uh, lastly, the, the new commandment is new because Jesus emphasizes the heart. And Peter, who was very close to Jesus, when he taught on this subject, he said, Love one another fervently from the heart. So there's a white hot love for brothers. It comes right from the heart. When you've got that love, that enables you to conduct yourself in a loving way. When you have that love, you are given wisdom. Wisdom comes from love. The wisdom that comes from above about how to deal with business situations, how to deal with your customers, how to deal with the law, how to deal with your taxes, how to deal with your wife, it all comes from deciding in your heart to love another person. Now, sometimes the hardest people in the world to love are the ones closest to you. I saw an article the other day that said, you know, the reason Mayberry was so peaceful and quiet was because nobody was married. Think about it. Andy, Aunt B, Barney, Floyd, Howard, Goober, Gomer, Sam, Ernest T. Bass, Helen, Thelma Lou, Clara, and of course Opie, all of them were single. The only person married was Otis, and he stayed drunk. Yeah, I got an amen over here. <laughs> hello, hello. So, I, look, I understand that sometimes the ones, it's easy to love a Muslim terrorist over in Syria. But loving the woman sleeping next to you, that's another matter sometimes. But here's the deal. You don't wait until your, uh, your emotions just kind of get stirred up. Maybe she does something nice and you start loving her. No, there's a hard decision that's made in the inner being 
where you decide I have been loved as an enemy of Jesus Christ. And I accept that as my standard. And I have to say to you, if you can't love your wife as your friend, love her like a Christian enemy. And a lot of wives would be a whole lot better off if Christian men would just love them as an enemy. Because it begins with a hard decision in the heart and you give and you serve and you lay down your life because of what Jesus has done for you, not because of what that person has done for you. So enemy love actually helps us as we think about friendship love, that it cuts through any condition. Once again, it doesn't mean you're permissive. It doesn't mean you condone stuff that's evil. It means that you're not promoting your interest, but the interest of another person. Now, he, he says here, which is true in him and in you. And this gets to the new energy that we have. What he's saying is that this truth is reality. Christ is real. And this love is in him. He's God incarnate. But notice he says here, it's in him and in you. Why is it in you as a believer? Because Christ is in you. So do you realize you have access to the same love that Christ has because Christ himself is in organic union with you. He's in your heart. So that as a believer, you're saying you walk in the light of love because Christ is in you. And when we're thinking about various temptations that we have out there, one of the greatest motives for us is why would I want to take Christ into this place? Why would I want to say these words with Christ living in me? It's kind of like if you have a five-year-old daughter. Do you want to take her to the places of corruption in this city? Of course not. You find yourself willing to lay down your life to protect that little girl who seems so innocent to you. But what about Christ being in you? You don't take him somewhere that he does not need to have his name be. So he's saying it's old and it's new. Now, let's look at uh, verses 9 through 11. And here we're going to see that for the believer, love is essential. It's essential. First of all, he's, he's, he's going to make three statements in verses 9, 10, 11. In 9, a hypocritical hater is lost. And why do I say hypocritical? Because he says in verse 9, someone is saying he is in the light. But at the same time that he says he's in the light, he is showing indifference, lack of concern, which is a form of hatred for his brother. That man is a hypocrite. And John says about him, he is still in the darkness. No matter what he says, he may say he's a believer, he may say he's in the light, but he is in the darkness because his heart has not been shaped in communion with his brothers. He is not making the effort. He has no desire to be in community and to love his brothers. There's no middle ground here. And what John is doing is making a stark contrast between light and darkness. You're either true or you're false. You're either in the light or you're in the darkness. There is no twilight zone. He's eliminating twilight zone. He's saying you come in the light or you're in the darkness and you need to understand who you are. Now he says secondly in verse 10, but a lover of the brethren is saved. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Now, this may seem like an overstatement to you, and certainly we might feel the same way when we look at chapter 4, verse 7, where he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever loves, yes. 
Not whoever has the sentiment of love. Not whoever falls in love. But whoever has this distinctive biblical love, the only way he gets that is because he knows God. The love that loves enemies. The love that is self-sacrificial. The love that delights itself in Christ in other men. If you find yourself delighting in other men because they're in Christ, if you find yourself desiring to love the brothers, I'm telling you, you're born again. That's what John is saying. So when this distinctive biblical love is in a man, he's saying, look, you're in the light and you can know it. Now, uh, thirdly, uh, let's, let's move on. Verse 11, he says, a hypocritical hater is blind. He's not only in the darkness, but he himself can't see. So it's not just that he's walking in darkness. He is blind. And you, of course, pick this up in 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul describes that the evil one has blinded the mind of the unbeliever. And we must have pity for those who don't know the Lord. They've been blinded. And the only way you became a Christian, if you are one this morning, is because God took the blinders off. Like, like Paul, when he was converted, he was blinded by the light of the vision of Christ. And then when he became a Christian, eventually the scales fell off his eyes and he could see. It was the Lord who allowed him to see. It's the Lord who's allowed you to see. So, of course, we get angry when others are promoting evil in society. It messes up our environment. It threatens our children. All kinds of reasons why we can be angry. But the dominant affection needs to be one of sympathy towards someone who is blind and they can't see. Therefore, we pray, Lord, remove the blindness. Uh, so thirdly, Roman numeral three, for the believer, love is inevitable, verses 12 through 14. Now, what's he, what's he doing here? He's, he's digressing in verses 12 through 14, this poetic sort of structure. I'm writing to you little children, young men, fathers. What's he doing? He's backing off. He's just calling a little bit of a timeout, and he's digressing because he realizes this. Whenever we talk about these distinctives, uh, it's important that the unbeliever hear it in order to realize that he's lost. I mean, when we talk about the very things that encourage us and grant us assurance of our faith, they're the same things that inform the unbeliever that he's not really a believer. And there may be some of you this morning who are not believers. And hopefully as we're looking through these things, you can see by the very definition of the type of love that a Christian has that you've not yet come into the kingdom, that you're still in darkness. So it's very helpful. The thing, very things that assure a Christian are the things that inform a non-Christian that he needs desperately needs the Lord. But oftentimes, uh, the two groups are listening in the wrong ways. The non-Christian will listen and say, well, I love people. I mean, I love people just as much as this guy over here does. And he begins to make excuses and grade on the curve and all kinds of things. And he misses the message. On the other hand, sometimes the believer will listen and say, well, I don't love perfectly. I'm thinking about those ugly things I said to my wife the other day. And gosh, am I really a Christian? And those of you who are more introspective and self-analytical on the rest, you feel that way every time we have a discussion like this. John knows that. He's a pastor. So John is saying, hold on just a minute. Let me remind you of a few things. Some of you are little children. That is, you've just begun your Christian faith. 
Some of you are young men. That means you've been at it for a while and you're in the thrust of it. And some of you are fathers. You've been Christians for a long, long time. And I want to tell you something uh, about yourself. Little children, you'll notice first of all, your sins are forgiven, A, in verse 12. He says, I want to take you back to the basics. You, you people who have just given your lives to Christ, I'm telling you something, your sins are forgiven. So don't cast aspersions on yourself. Don't condemn yourself. And we're talking about these hard things that like perfect enemy love that you've not fully accomplished yet. You're on the road. And the reason you're on the road, your sins are forgiven. They're gone. You have no charges against you. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? He's the judge. He's the advocate. He's everything. And he's acquitted you. So relax. Uh, don't relax wrongly. Relax rightly. Don't be afraid. Little children, your sins are forgiven. And he says about the little children, uh, the, the new believers, a little later on, he says, you know, you, you know God. You know Him. You have a relationship with Him. And then look secondly, he says, you know God personally. He said, I'm writing to you fathers. This is the second group he talks about, verse 13a. I'm writing to you fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. And he, he uses that kind of language when he talks to the fathers. Uh, he says, uh, likewise, um, in verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. So he says, you, you men who have been around for a while, a long time, some of you decades, you know the ancient of days. You know the ancient father, the everlasting God in whose arms we rest. You know the father who is from the beginning. So he's encouraging uh, the old fathers among us. Don't let your boat get rattled either. And then he talks to the young men in, the, in C, uh, verse 13b. You have overcome the evil one. He says, gentlemen, remember you've had victory after victory after victory. How do you think that's happened? It's because you put on the armor of God. You put on Christ, including the sword of the Spirit. And you took that word of God, the sword of the Spirit, and you used it. And you've seen Satan flee a thousand times. And you're in the midst of the battle. And he says, I'm going to remind you, you're in the midst of the battle and you've been winning over and over and over again. And you're here studying the Bible. Why? Because the Lord has a hold of you. Young men, settle down. We're talking about these sharp distinctives, the difference between light and darkness. But just remember who you are. You're men who've been in this battle and you're winning the battle. And then fourthly, he once again refers uh, to uh, the young men especially. But he says, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So he says, not only have you been in the spiritual battles you've been winning, but you got the word of God in your heart. And Jeremiah said, when the new covenant comes, I will write my law upon their hearts. You'll have an intuitive sense of biblical knowledge. And you young men, who are in the midst of the battle, who have been Christian for a while, but you're engaged in the, in the warfare, you know the Word of God is in your heart. Why is that? Because you've been born of God. So, brothers, the big deal is love. <laughs> love. It's the greatest distinctive between you and an unbeliever is that you've got this deep, unconditional love even for your enemies. And you're being held accountable to that standard. Let us pray. Father, today we are so thankful for your love for us. You have loved your enemies, for we were your enemies. We set ourselves against you. Everything in our flesh waged war against you. 
and yet you came down and laid down your life for us. You sent your spirit to your enemies to change our hearts so that we became your friends. You have given us everything, and we pray that as we leave here, beginning with our friends and ending with our enemies, you will enable us to love as Jesus Christ has loved us. And may all the world know that we're your disciples because we love. We make our prayer in the loving name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.